So this morning we come to uh, the last message in our Kingdom series, and we're going to be in the book of Acts if you've got uh, a copy of God's Word with you. If not, you can uh, open it on your, uh, your mobile device. The words will be up here on the screen. We'll be in Acts uh, chapters 1 and 2. Um, Philip Yancey is an author that maybe some of you have, have read, maybe you haven't, but he, um, he's a Christian, uh, was a journalist for a lot of years, and he writes with a, a lot of authenticity and, and rawness about uh, where God is when it hurts, about his, his own struggles with understanding and accepting and, and living in the goodness and the beauty of God. Um, he is an author also that has been uh, very honest in the past about his own struggles with the church and kind of refinding the church uh, later in life. And he wrote a, a, a small book called Church, uh, Why Bother? Church, Why Bother? Uh, I really recommend it. It's a good little book. But it came to me um, at a really welcome time in my life as I was getting ready to, to graduate uh, from undergraduate, from, from college, and did graduate uh, and was called to ministry, but, but the, the only world that I knew was a very calm, controlled, choreographed, sort of institutional church world. And I, I, didn't, um, I didn't understand uh, all of my gifting at that time. I, I didn't understand the apostolic kinds of gifts. Um, I just knew that that wasn't for me. And I couldn't figure out what God was going to do with me. I thought, you know, I'm, I'm such a misfit because I can't calm down. Right? I just can't uh, be satisfied and settled into a, a nice little square. Um, and so I, I picked up Yancey's book and read it, and it's such a fantastic work. And he has a great line in there where he says, I left the church because I found so little grace there. I returned to the church because I found grace nowhere else. And he talks about his, his own journey and his own struggle toward a deeper theological understanding of what it means to be the people of God. What it means to be the ever-widening, ever-growing, ever-going mission of God on earth. And that's what we're going to see this morning. We're going to see the birth of the church, and we're going to learn a few things about what it means truly to be the church that we see right out of the gate in Acts chapters 1 and 2. And before we jump into uh, the scripture here, I'll just throw it out for you. Uh, kind of my outline for this morning, and it's, it's basic and it's short. Um, don't confuse a short outline with a short message. Um, but uh, it is a short outline. I, I think we're going to see three things that are very basic but also powerful. And it is, I think, often true that it is the basic, simple things in life that are actually truly powerful. We're going to see in Acts 1 and 2 that the church, as God intends it to be, is empowered by the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit, driven by mission, and characterized by movement. That the church, as God intends, as Christ birthed, is empowered by the Holy Spirit, driven by mission, and characterized by movement. Let's jump into Acts chapter 1, and we'll read verses 1 uh, through 8 here. In my former book, Luke wrote Acts, and he's referring to the Gospel of Luke here. Luke Acts is really a volume 1, volume 2 of Luke's writing. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit, 
to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, Luke's pulling in the cross here, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God was always the central message of Jesus. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So Jesus is setting up his apostles and his disciples following his crucifixion and resurrection and he's letting them know that they just need to hold on they need to they need to hover just for a little while where they are and the promised spirit that luke uh, that uh, jesus says in luke 24 is going to clothe them with power from on high is going to come on them and they're going to be his witnesses and what's amazing is in verse 6, they gather around him and they, and they ask this question, is it at this time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They still did not understand. This should give us hope. They'd walked with Jesus all this time. He had consistently and continually explained to them and displayed for them through power that the kingdom of God was not about Israel, that Israel was a means to an end. And they still didn't get it. They still understood at this time the kingdom of God and the missional movement of God to be ethnically centered and geographically centered and politically centered in the nation of Israel. And so he says to them in verse 8, this verse that so many of us are familiar with, that they're to wait because they're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on them. The Holy Spirit's not going to come on them and lead them into a nap. The Holy Spirit's going to come on them in power and propel them as gospel witnesses. The Holy Spirit's going to make them unable to be still. But, and yet, their movement, their activity is going to be productive. Christ-exalting. God-centered. And he says, you'll be my witnesses. Let's look at this idea of what it means to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Because this was a group that, that was already what we would call believers. They were already believers. The Holy Spirit comes on them and indwells in them. We're going to see in chapter 2. And then begins to, to use them in special and unique ways. You and I, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ... The New Testament is clear that, that our faith, our life with God is then sealed by the Holy Spirit. That the Spirit of God dwells in us, lives in us, testifies to us 
and on our behalf that we are indeed children of God. And yet there's something special that God does from time to time through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit that propels us as His church to be His people and to effectively be His people and to be unsatisfied with the status quo. So what I, what I don't want you to do as we look at chapter 1 and, and parts of chapter 2 is to get nervous if you haven't had this kind of impact or effect in your life and say, maybe I'm not a follower of Jesus. Martin Lloyd-Jones, that great 20th century British preacher who by most accounts is the, the greatest expositor of Scripture in uh, the 20th century, had some of the best thinking about this that I've run across. And he, he describes this, this empowering presence of the Holy Spirit that is at times beyond what is normal in our lives as men and women of God, as followers of Jesus, as like a child who's happily walking along the road with his or her father, holding the father's hand. And they're happy and they're glad inwardly because the Lord has filled them with the Holy Spirit. He said they're happy because they're holding their father's hand and they're just walking along. And they're trusting that everything that needs to be will be because the Father loves them. Their Father's with them. Their Father cares about them. And from time to time, the Father jerks them up and spins them around and lifts them up in the air and says to them, I'm so glad you're mine. I love you. You are my delight. And then puts them back down and continues to walk. And those moments of being lifted up and spun around and and looked directly at and told, you are my child, I'm so glad you're mine. I love you. I delight in you. Those are, those are these moments where the special power of God comes on us from time to time, and we experience this. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones goes on to say specifically, the fuses of love are so overloaded that they almost blow out. The subconscious doubts that he wasn't thinking about at the time but that pop up every now and then are gone. And in their place is utter and indestructible assurance that you know that you know that you know that God is real and Jesus lives and you are loved. And to be saved is the greatest thing in the world. And as you walk down the street, you can scarcely contain yourself and you want to cry out, My Father loves me, my Father loves me, Oh, what a great father I have, what a father, what a father. Lloyd-Jones went on to say that that's what it's like to be clothed in power on high by the Holy Spirit, a, a driving out of any doubt, of any lack of assurance, and an experience of gladness of heart that comes as we live under the weight of God's delight in us as His children. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never experienced that. It doesn't mean you're not a believer, you're not a child of God. But I would, I would encourage you, pray for that. Ask God to give you those moments where you are swept up in the goodness and delight that He has for you as a son or a daughter, clothed in the righteousness of Christ and clothed in power by the Holy Spirit. Jesus tells them to wait because they're going to need this kind of, of spiritual empowerment to be his church and we need it here 
You need it in your life, and I need it in mine. And I love, I love Lloyd-Jones' honesty when he says those subconscious doubts that we aren't all the time thinking about, but they pop up every now and then. Tell me that's not been your experience. That's at the root of a bunch of our struggle. Is this issue of accepting that God loves us, that he has profoundly and fully done what he says he's done in us through Jesus Christ. We simply do not have the power to be the church that God's calling us to be without this unleashing of the Holy Spirit in our lives. In our lives individually and as a result of that in our life as a church. The church is empowered by the Holy Spirit. And you, you see, we'll look at verse 8, you see all three of these um, things that we're talking about this morning. The empowerment of the Holy Spirit, the fact that the church is driven by mission, and that we're characterized by movement. You see them all in verse 8. And I just want to highlight that before we move on to Acts 2. Obviously, he says we'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, thus the empowerment of the Holy Spirit for the church, and you will be my witnesses. What he says is that as my corporate people, my collective people, you will be driven by mission. You'll be driven by mission. Luke 19 tells us that the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And we are swept into that mission. We see it here. We'll be witnesses. And not just witnesses in a nice, calm, quiet little circle, but he says, my church through all of its many expressions as long as human history is moving toward that beautiful end for which God has in store the renewal of all things, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, were, were these specific individuals that Jesus was talking to, were they going to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth? No, they weren't going to live long enough. But his spirit-empowered, mission-driven church absolutely will be as we are characterized by movement. First of all, empowered by the Spirit. Now, let's drill down and drop anchor a little bit and look at what it means to be driven by mission. Turn over to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. We'll read verses 1 through 13. When the day of Pentecost came, now let me pause there for just a minute. Pentecost was one of three festivals, one of three large parties, large celebrations that Israel did regularly uh, around which everyone who was able was supposed to come back to Jerusalem to celebrate. It was right at the end of the, the barley harvest, but before they began to, to plant wheat. And, and it was a huge celebration. It was the celebration of the giving of the law at Sinai. Now, depending on our personalities, right, like if, if, you're, if God has wired you as a, as a rules keeper and an analytical thinker and you like um, detailed outlines and you like to know what's expected to follow that, man, you would have enjoyed the giving of the law at Sinai. Now, if you're not, you might need a, a little help understanding why that was such a beautiful thing. And I'll just tell you as one who's not built as the, the former, um, but as the latter, uh, it's such a beautiful thing because what God was doing through the giving of the law at Sinai was teaching his people what it meant to really be alive as human beings, what it meant to, to live the most human life they could, and what it meant to be a community and to live in community with one another. 
And the giving of the law comes at a time in human history that is incredibly, incredibly dark and violent and immoral and idolatrous. So it was this beautiful gift that God gave his people by which they were supposed to teach all peoples and all nations what it meant to be human, what it meant to live in community, what it meant to live as people created by and accountable to God. So they're, uh, they're there on the day of Pentecost. They were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And this is this, this human sign, this, this tangible event or act by which we're to understand the presence of God coming through the Holy Spirit. They saw what seemed like tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. Now let's pause for a minute, right? Let's just stop and think about this. This, if you are a thinker, is at the very least strange. Right? Imagine this morning. Like Baptist Presbyterians would be undone by this. Good, calm Methodists. The wind begins to blow violently. Tongues of fire separate in the air and come and land on each person. Tell me you wouldn't be slightly undone by that. Right? It would take all afternoon to recover and some of you'd never make it. All right? Some of us would just be in awe and childishly intrigued at what was taking place. You know, wanting to see whose tongue of fire is bigger. Right? God's blessing me more. I must have earned it. They got a tiny little tongue over there. Barely a little bit of fire. More like a flicker. All right? So this is going on. Came to rest on each of them. Verse 4, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, we can get weird, but we can't get weird from this passage. This is very clearly a Spirit-enabled ability to speak in foreign languages and address all of the people that had come into Jerusalem for Pentecost in the languages that they understood. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in languages, but I can tell you, uh, when I took Spanish, Greek, or Hebrew, I would have loved for this ability to have come on me. Where in an instant, through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, I could simply speak a foreign language. Verse 5, Now there were, staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. If you'll reach back and remember that the Jews... Um, had been conquered, the northern um, nation of Israel, southern nation of Judah by Assyria and Babylon. They'd been carried off in exile. Many of them had returned. Many of them had not. So you had Jews living all around the region, and they'd come from surrounding nations back to Jerusalem for Pentecost. Verse 6 says, When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment. Because we're drawn to the macabre and the different and the unusual, aren't we? We talked about this some weeks back. That's why people always rubberneck on the highway uh, when there are lights from first responders' vehicles there. We're just curious what's going on. They come together because each one heard their own language being spoken. Their own language being spoken by men they knew did not know their languages. Utterly amazed, they ask, aren't all of these who are speaking Galileans? then how is it that each of us hears them in our native tongue or native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, 
residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and all the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to, do, to Judaism. So you've got Jews and Gentiles there. Cretans, who were disgusting, foul human beings. That was just their culture on Crete. Go read Titus. Cretans describe themselves that way. We're liars, we're immoral, this is who we are. They're there, they're listening. And Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Can, can I tell you, when we celebrate Christmas, part of what we do is declare the wonders of God? At the very heart of who we are is this incarnational nature of God. That God would come and take on human flesh. And anytime someone doesn't understand the church's great passionate desire to make the gospel accessible to culture. To do as the Apostle Paul said when he said, I have become all things to all people. So that somehow by the mercy and grace and power of God, some might be saved. I just ask them, where's your understanding of, of the incarnation? If you don't think, apart from sin, we are to make ourselves, our lives, our language, the way that we do church, utterly accessible to the unchurched, I don't know what you do with the incarnation. Because God steps out of glory, out of privilege, out of comfort, and he comes, and he walks the earth. Amazed and perplexed, they ask each other, what does this mean? Man, when God is at work in our midst, people look in. They look on and say, what's going on? I want to go to that place and just see what's happening. I want to see what God is doing in the midst of these people. That is becoming more and more and more difficult to ignore. 13, some, however, made fun of them and said they've had too much wine. Some of them said, ah, they're just drunk. That's all it is. Let's pause there for a minute. Because immediately when the Holy Spirit comes on them, they are driven to mission. That is the first thing that the Holy Spirit empowers them to do. He calls them out into mission. He doesn't call them into a class. He doesn't call them to write a devotional. He calls them to mission, to evangelistic, outreach-centered mission. Leslie Newbegin, if you haven't discovered Leslie Newbegin, you need to. Phenomenal British missionary, spent most of his life in India, returned to England. You've heard me talk about him before. Returned to England and found a, a, a West that was completely um, transformed while he was gone. And he came back and said, holy cow, the West is as big a mission field as India was. We've completely rolled past the, the area of Christendom with the church at the center of culture that I left 30 years ago. And now we've got to begin to see our streets and our neighborhoods and our workplaces as mission fields. And Newbegin began to write and to preach and to teach and just has an incredible body of work. But Newbegin says that there is no participation in Christ without participation in his mission in the world. I hope you'll let that sink in on you a little bit. When I first read that in his book called The Open Secret, The Open Secret, it, it was startling to me. It was awakening. It's such a simple sentence, yet so profound. There is no participation in Christ without participation in his mission to the world. I absolutely believe that. To be called up in the redeeming nature of Christ is to be called up in the pouring out missional nature of Christ. 
That's who we are. We're inviting people in to this great transformation that we've experienced by the grace and mercy of God. We're inviting them to consider what it means to become part of the people of God through repentance and forgiveness and restoration that's available in Jesus Christ. Daryl Guter puts it this way in a book called The Church and Its Vocation. He says, to describe the church as missional is to make a basic theological claim to articulate a widely held but also widely ignored consensus. <laughs> Isn't that true that so much of what is widely held is widely ignored? I feel that way about eating vegetables. It is widely held to be true that all kinds of green vegetables are extremely good for you. It is also widely ignored in practice. Now maybe some of you are, are green, leafy green lovers. I envy you. I have to work at it. A widely held but also widely ignored consensus regarding the fundamental purpose of the Christian church. Rather than seeing mission as, at best, one of the necessary prongs of the church's calling, right? It's something we do, not who we are. And at worst, a misguided adventure. It must be seen as the fundamental, the essential, the centering understanding of the church's purpose and action. A church not on mission with God's kingdom out in front of us, is not a church. It may be many other things, but it is not a church. And you look back at verse 13, and I just want to tell you, if you get, if you get wildly on mission personally, if you get wildly on mission as a family, if we get wildly on mission as a church, where, wherever the Holy Spirit does profound things, you'll always find religious people mocking it. You'll always find religious people walking. This is what's happening in verse 13. These are, these are God-fearing Jews and other men and women who've been swept into the movement of God. Very religious. That's why they're back at Pentecost to Jerusalem. It wasn't easy or cheap to get there, right? They didn't, they didn't buy a discounted one-day want-to-get-away Southwest Fair ticket. It was difficult for them. They paid a price to get back to Jerusalem for Pentecost. However, when the Spirit of God begins to move and shake things up and it looks different and something they, they can't quite comprehend is going on, they mock it. They make fun of them and say, hey, they must have had too much wine. Just, just in, the, in the DNA of religious people, there's a distrust of anything they haven't personally experienced and or they don't understand. But I'll tell you, friends, God often unsettles us before and as he's doing great things. This is how God moves. But we saw the same kind of mockery uh, in our own recent history with great movements of God. We saw it during the first and second great awakenings in the 17th and 18th century. We saw it in the Azusa Street revivals, great revivals in Los Angeles, and in the great Welsh revival across the pond. In the early 20th century, God was doing remarkable, wild, new, beautiful things. And religious people mocked and scoffed at it. But you know what God did? He just kept doing his thing. And people kept being saved. And new churches kept being started. The power of God through the Holy Spirit was poured out. People were clothed in power from on high. God needs no one's permission to do anything. He will do as he sees fit. His church is empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's driven by mission, and it's characterized by movement, by movement. Look at verse 14. Peter, as Peter often does, stands up. Now, I want you to understand this. 
Peter's about to stand up as one of a cadre of formerly spineless men who had followed Jesus most closely and scattered as fast as possible at his crucifixion. But something different has happened. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, the filling by the Holy Spirit, has empowered this formerly cowardice Peter who ran when the stakes were high to stand up in front of this massive crowd and begin to be Christ's witness. Friends, if you're a follower of Jesus, man, woman, young or old this morning, this is your primary vocation in life, to be a witness of Jesus Christ and have your life characterized by kingdom-centered movement. Verse 14, then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. I guess he didn't have his mic on, right? He had to stand up, raise his voice, and address the crowd. Fellow Jews, all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. Don't you you love his reason why they're not drunk? It's just too early. Come back and see us this evening after dinner. Right? I mean, he didn't say that, but I just love this. It's so funny to me. They're not drunk. It's just nine. We haven't had time to get drunk yet. Verse 15, they're not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Peter's beginning to connect the dots. This is part of what the Holy Spirit does. Verse 17, he begins to quote from Joel chapter 2. In the last days, God will pour out my spirit. God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. This is why that all word is significant. Because throughout the Old Testament, the spirit of God would come on people. But he he would come on specific individuals at specific times for specific tasks and enable them to do that which God had called them to do. But Peter, watching what's going on, reaches back to Joel and says, "This, this is that. This is what he was talking about. This is part of what the Spirit of God will enable you to do as you begin to read God's Word thoroughly. Not just a sentence here and a verse there. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women. What's happening here is is there's this summary across classes and genders and age demographics that the Holy Spirit's going to be sovereign and active in the life of all of God's people. Even on my servants, both men and women. I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. There's this apocalyptic language that is centered on that that day when Christ will ultimately return and consummate all that his spirit has been doing in and through the church. Verse 21, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Who will be saved who calls on the name of the Lord? Everyone. No matter how dark your past has been, no matter how religious your past has been, no matter what your current struggles are, no matter what you wish had or hadn't happened to you, 
or as a result of your decisions, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone whose, whose heart throws itself onto Jesus for salvation will be saved. Now, Peter goes on. He wants to make sure that he doesn't fail to offend everyone who's listening. So he goes on then to explain to them, you, through your attitudes, your action, your heart, you crucified Jesus Christ, this Jesus whom God raised. And he says it again, like in case you missed it the first time, I want to make sure you understand that you were involved in crucifying the Messiah. Yet God raised him from the dead, confirming for all that he was indeed the one to come. That God has now accomplished what God set out to accomplish through the coming of the Messiah. And the kingdom of God is now broken wide open to all people of all tribes and tongues, all ethnicities, all races, all socioeconomic groups all around the world. It's no longer centered in one people or one nation. This is the message that we carry. And they, heard, they had a tremendous backstory to this message that you and I miss. We tend to think bad people throw themselves on Jesus, now make good people going to heaven. That's a portion of the message. But those listening understood that the Messiah was coming and in and through him God was making all things new. He was righting all the wrongs. That cosmic history was under his control. And that his entire creation would be renewed. Eternally so. They had this massive backstory that they understood that the Messiah was going to lead. That's why they were so anxious to know is now that time. Because they misunderstood the story to mean only them. That God was going to do all of this stuff, but it would only be received and enjoyed by the people of Israel. Now, look at verses 40 and 41. With many other words he warned them, and he pleaded with them. He's pleading, don't miss this, he's pleading with religious people who have this massive backstory, but are failing in the moment to see God fulfilling it in their midst. He says, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. From this actual generation that has crucified Christ. Now, had everyone listening there been a part of crucifying Christ? Probably not. Probably not at all. But all of us in our human brokenness and our sin and our desire to be God. Our desire to call our own shots. Our desire to submit to that which only seems reasonable. Or sensical to us. All of us have participated in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Some of you saw years back Mel Gibson's film, The Passion. And some of you will know that the, there, uh, Mel Gibson is only in one scene there, and it's just his hand on the hammer that's driving the nails into Jesus' arms. Because it was Mel's understanding that his own sin and his own hardened heart and his own rebelliousness toward God played a part in that. And that's the only part he played was in crucifying the Son of God. Now look at verse 41. Those who accepted his message. Now what does that indicate to us? That some didn't. This has always been the case. Some accept and some reject. Every time the gospel is preached, you and I are responding to it. We are submitting or refusing to submit our lives to the authority, to the authority of God manifested in his son, communicated to us through his word. We submit to it or we don't. Those who accepted 
his message, were baptized. There was this collective acceptance by a large group and an individual indication of that acceptance through the act of baptism. Friends, baptism is our public profession of faith in Jesus Christ. We're offering baptism at the 4 and the 5.30 services. Some of you in this room this morning and some of you watching, you've said yes to God a long time ago, but you never made it public through believer's baptism. Some of you, you're hanging on to something that uh, was taught to you as baptism that happened to you before you had a faith experience personally with Jesus Christ. And I'll just tell you with all candor and honesty, that wasn't baptism. Baptism always follows the decision to submit oneself to Jesus Christ and receive new life in Him and forgiveness through God. Believer's baptism. Some of you need to hear God saying, hey, submit to me. Make your sonship, your daughtership, make your status as a follower of mine public by being baptized. And if you need to do that, let us know. We'll set you up. We're excited to do that as part of our Christmas Eve services. They're baptized. They make their public profession of faith. And about 3,000 were added to their number that day. 3,000 added to their numbers. Ron Delaney, wherever you are, we might actually need all of our chairs here then. We've got more chairs than you can possibly fathom here. 3,000 added. Makes you wonder how many were listening. If that was the number of those who responded. You have this corporate witness, this missional witness in all of their languages. By the apostles as a whole. And then you have this personal prophetic testimony, this preaching of the gospel by Peter. That elicits movement, right? The, the church of God is already on the march here. The church of God, is, as there's this testimony that goes out in all of the languages that those people will carry back to their home countries, whether they carry it back saying, I heard the craziest thing you could ever imagine while I was in Jerusalem, and they start sharing it. God does all kinds of things through his word when it's shared, regardless of the motive for sharing it. Or whether it's part of this 3,000 in Jerusalem that relocates or stays there and begins to share. And people say, man, you're different now. What's up with you? You were pious and religious before, but now all of a sudden you're kind and generous and loving. And you're a follower of Jesus. And you understand Jesus as being Yahweh, the one true God and the Messiah. There's movement. The church has always been a movement and not an institution. The church has always been characterized by kingdom-centered, Christ-exalting, biblically faithful movement. We are a people on mission. Daryl Guter, who I mentioned earlier, has this great statement about the freedom that we have in Christ as a movement. He says, the thick hope, the thick hope, which is what he calls uh, this, this personal hope that we have in Jesus Christ, that unites all Christians, gives us permission to experiment, to err, to repent, to reform, and to move ahead as Christ leads us. This characterizes us individually and corporately as the people of God. We have this great permission, this great freedom to experiment, to err, to repent, to reform, and to move ahead. Alan Hurst and Tim Catchum wrote a book called The Permanent Revolution. 
the permanent revolution, about the apostolic nature of the church, that the church is always taking ground. We're never holding ground and we're never giving ground. That the church is always moving forward, empowered by God's Spirit. In the permanent revolution, they write that the two of us fully believe, fully believe that the church intended, the church Jesus intended, was specifically designed with built-in, self-generative capacities. Meaning we are constantly being renewed by God's Spirit and pushed out perpetually in mission. Designed with built-in self-generative capacities and was made, was made for nothing less than world-transforming, lasting, and yes, revolutionary impact. That when the church comes alive, it affects the culture and the climate and society around us. We certainly do not believe that Christianity was ever meant to become domesticated civil religion. Jesus intended us to be a permanent revolution, an outpost of the kingdom of God, no less. Church, that's what we're called to be. That's who we are. My desire and my challenge to you today, tomorrow, next week, through the Christmas season, as we kick off 2021, is to be getting on your knees at home, in your office, up here when you're here, and praying and asking God to unleash His Spirit in us and through us in ways that we can't control and maybe we don't even understand. We just simply thank God for being good and powerful and generous and seek to follow Him to the best of our abilities will it be uncomfortable probably probably is it going to push you out into some areas and some things where maybe you haven't thought that way or you haven't exercised your faith that way absolutely absolutely and friends this is this is where new life comes this is where our faith begins to come alive this is where you begin to receive the power regardless of how it looks or may come across, to start talking to friends at school and co-workers and neighbors around you about Jesus and inviting them to come and just experience what God is doing. That's my desire and my hope for us. As the band comes and we begin to respond to God again in worship, I would just say that our mandate, our mission, is most definitely to go tell it on the mountain. And in the valleys, and on the lakes, and at the rivers, and at the beach, and in your neighborhood and my neighborhood. In the businesses and shops and gyms and parks around the church. That we would say, God has come in Christ. And relationship with God is open to you, and God is reclaiming all that is His. And COVID doesn't get the last word. And war doesn't get the last word. And death doesn't get the last word. Jesus Christ is Lord. He has the final say. Let's stand and pray.